Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Mike Delantis. So Mike is the founder of something called ChronoCards. But that's what he's doing today. He started as a cartographer for an adventure race in Patagonia. So he's come, he's come a long way. So a couple of other really interesting points about Mike. He's self-taught. He's a self-taught software developer and he is a self-taught businessman. And the reason why I mention this is because it means that if Mike can do it, then you can do it too. And as you'll discover later on in the episode, all you have to do is to get really, really comfortable with uncertainty. So this podcast is free to listen to, but it's not free to make. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, and also costs money. So my pitch to Mike, and indeed to every business that is featured on this podcast, is the same. If you help cover the costs, I will do the work, and together we'll make something worth listening to and something that will give more than what we take. And this was the same pitch to Mike. But Mike isn't you know, a billion dollar business, not yet anyway. And so when someone like Mike says, yes, yep, I'm in, I will help cover the costs. I will help ensure that this podcast continues to be a free resource that anybody can listen to. Well, I really appreciate that. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for taking the time to, to talk with me today. Re- really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this. So you are the CEO and founder of something called ChronoCards, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later on. But as the listeners of this podcast will know, this has got something to do with GIS, something to do with geospatial, and you have a background in that as well. So let's start with that. Perhaps you could just introduce yourself to the listeners, please, and describe how you got involved in, in GIS, geospatial, and then we'll just go from there. Yeah. Hey, Dad, thanks for having me. So I'm Mike DeVolantis. Uh, I live in Western Colorado, and uh, I started as a GIS analyst and now do kind of software development and a handful of other things. But really, I, I kind of like, I started my career in GIS as a cartographer for this adventure race in Patagonia. They don't really have a lot of, or at the time, they didn't have a lot of detailed topographic maps for the areas where this adventure race was going. So we go and map that. And then I worked as a civilian for the Naval Facilities Engineering Command, the Park Service, oil and gas, all as a GIS analyst. And kind of like along the way, I self-taught software engineering, just really because I got into it through Python scripting and a desire not to click the same thing 4,000 times. And so since 2016, I've made a living doing geospatial software freelance and consulting. And that's kind of part of what I still do today. Wow. You, so you have come a really, really long way. When you say self-taught, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? Like just reading books? Were you doing tutorials on the internet, watching YouTube videos. How did you teach yourself programming, software development? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it was like tutorials on the internet. I took a couple of classes in college. Like I had one geoprocessing using Python class. And I think that was actually the only official like collegiate level course I ever had in it. But otherwise it was really more just knowing that there was a problem I wanted to solve and knowing that it was possible to solve it by looking at what other people had done. Saying like, all right, well, if they were able to solve this problem using X tools, I should be able to do it. And then just kind of pulling out what was left of my hair until I figured it out. And uh, yes, it was very stressful. But I, I also had somewhat of a technical background. Like growing up, my dad would always teach us like little bits of programming here and there because he's a hobby programmer. And I had grown up just kind of messing around with computers as, as a hobby. And I went to school for geography, but like all along in the background, I was like, oh, man, I should have done computer science. But I don't have the math skills for that, I guess. Do you, do you feel like, or has, has there been a point in your software development career where you think, oh, I, I wish I had more of a, I don't know, a, a university background in this. I, I wish I had some sort of official education in this because of, for whatever reason, I, I don't understand what 
these other people are talking about. I, I don't understand their way of developing software. Yeah, you know, actually not even a little bit have I ever really been like, boy, that computer science stuff is over my head. I don't have, you know, if, if we go into some deep algorithmic things, like, you know, I can get lost in some efficiency type stuff, but a lot of that you can self-teach without needing to know the nuts and bolts of it behind the scenes, which don't get me wrong, that'd be great to know. But for like a practical boots on the ground web development background of today, I, I rarely encounter something that's well over my head that would require, you know, actual college courses to get through. That's really interesting. Has anybody ever asked for that or said like, or sort of turned you down for, for work because you, you don't have that background? No, no, never. And it's been more kind of results oriented. Um, and that's really, again, how I had gotten started was, uh, was just through scripting geospatial things. And if you're the only person who can script geospatial things you know, on your team, then that makes you valuable just because you can do it and no one else can. And it's not necessarily you have to be the best at it. You just have to be the person who's there who can do it. You know what? I think a lot of people with a, that sort of traditional GIS background are going to listen to this and think, wow, I could do this too. So that, that, I think, and I think that's a really positive thing. Okay, so you've come a long way. You started off as a cartographer for this adventure race in Patagonia, I think you said. Then you worked as a GIS technician analyst and then taught yourself how to develop software and worked, as, and worked on sort of freelance software projects. And now you're building this thing called ChronoCards. Pitch me ChronoCards. What is ChronoCards? What does it do? Yeah, so ChronoCards enables you to manage GIS better by providing activity logs and workflow documentation and reporting tools for ArcGIS Pro. And it's like a little bit of like background on it. As I said, my background is as an analyst, and then I eventually became a software engineer. And there's a really popular software engineering tool called GitHub, and, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. Most people are. But it essentially it logs the things you do in code and lets you document them as you're doing them. And so you can see everyone's activity more or less as it happens. And the deeper into software I dove, the more indispensable GitHub was for collaborating on projects with other members of my team and just kind of figuring out, remembering what I did myself. And I kind of reflected back on my GIS analyst days and thought like, man, if there was something like this for GIS, it would have saved me a lot of pain because there's just like, there have been no shortage of nights as a GS analyst where I was sitting there wondering like, how did I do this? Why is it not working now? And it used to work. And the real root of this is that there was nothing that would log exactly what I was doing. And they'll be easily searchable for you know months later or for me to look at across the team. And so that's kind of really where ChronoCards started from. You know, it's an ArcGIS Pro add-in that logs metadata about your team's activity in Arc and streams it real time to web dashboard. And so like the example would be that, you know, you and I, Dan, are working together on a project for a big client and you're doing some sort of complex analysis and I'm cleaning the data and handling the layout and we finish it. Everyone loves it. And you promptly leave for your dream job, you know, somewhere you go to New Zealand for apps for uh, two months. And, uh, you know, we just don't ever see or hear from you. And later on, client comes back and says like, hey, we need updates to that project. And I was the one doing just the layouts and kind of the printing and things like that. I'm kind of left holding the bag for this analysis. You didn't write anything down. And so I spent weeks of company time trying to recreate exactly what you did to improve this analysis and pass it off to the client. And, you know, with Chrono Cards, I can pull up your exact steps and with comments, hopefully, that you left me to understand down to the individual parameter what you did. And so, you know, I could see exactly what the inputs, the outputs were to geoprocessing tools, kind of exactly what happened. And that is the kind of like invaluable 
institutional knowledge that we're trying to retain as analysts go from one job to another or analysts just kind of leave because it's difficult to recreate a geospatial analysis if you didn't write down every single step along the way. There are kind of pieces to this where you can pull pieces of this out of geoprocessing history, provided that you still have the APRX file that the process was done in. But geoprocessing history doesn't really tell you the why behind what happened. It doesn't tell you exactly who did it, and you can't leave comments alongside it. So you'd end up just having to open up a bunch of different APRX files, hoping that I find the one that you were working in, scroll back through thousands of operations, find the ones, the, you know, the exact little pieces that you did, and then cross my fingers that I can reproduce it. So you said something really, really interesting there. You were talking, or you said a lot of interesting things, but the last bit there, scroll back through thousands of operations. So I've, I've recently had to do this, looking through GeoServer logs. And you've talked about logging, you know, a couple of times in, in your pitch there for, with ChronoCards. Scrolling back through thousands of logs, thousands and thousands of logs, is not always really, really helpful. Yeah, so how do you log things in such a way that, that is helpful, that I can see what the process was, that I can see, oh, you, you edited this thing here in some sort of meaningful way? Like, I'm sort of struggling with this idea of logs being helpful, but maybe you can help me out with that. Yeah, I mean, so one part is when you talk about thousands of different operations, it's just too much information for, for you to really find useful. And one of the things that's, that we allow is, you know, we add context to it, both in terms of the APRX file and who was doing it and the time it was happening. But we allow you to filter by all of those things so that you can pick out just the time that's, you know, just the relevant pieces. And so if I say like, okay, on this example project that you and I are working on before you took off for your dream job, I can know that, okay, you know, about a month before Dan left is when we were really looking for these things. And I know more or less when you left. So I can filter down to that time, filter down to the exact project, even down to the exact layers, perhaps, that you were using, you know, from ArcGIS Online or from Portal or SDE. Filter down to the exact layers that you're using and then see just operations that happened on those layers during this time period so that I'm not stuck scrolling through, you know, several thousand lines of geoprocessing history. I can find just the relevant pieces that I know or you know, that you touched that involve the data that's, you know, that's at hand. Okay, so I'm going to show my age a little bit. It's been a while since I've worked with S3 products. Back in my day, we had something called an, an, an MXD, and, and I'm assuming that there's something like that in, in ArcGIS Pro today. Do I have to be working in that same, you know, the equivalent of an MXD in ArcGIS Pro for this to make sense, for those logs to keep updating? What happens if we're both working in, in different files? Yeah, so I mean, I can see your work, the steps you take, kind of no matter where it is. Um, and of course, you, you can turn this on and off as a generalization, but ideally, you have it on while you're looking, while you're going through this analysis. And even if you're in a different APRX file, which is kind of like the modern day MXD, if you're in a different APRX file and in a different pro project than I am, and you did all your work there, that's kind of where Chrono Cards would even come in more useful because as you leave, let's say that these APRX files that you have, your pro projects get deleted because they were on your C drive or something like that, and the company takes the computer back and nukes it. Now with Chrono Cards, we kind of have a geoprocessing history that's stored outside of just that file so that I would be able to see, you know, the GP ops and not just the GP operations, but also like the edits and, you know, every step of the progress that you made through this project even without the file itself that, you know, may be long gone. Okay, so, so you said stored outside of this file. Where, where is it being stored? Is it self-hosted? Is it in the cloud? Like, where, where, does, where does Chrono Cards exist? 
Yeah, so most of our customers currently are on the cloud version just because it's very easy for you know onboarding. If with the cloud version where we we host the data, you as the end user just have to install a ArcGIS Pro add-in, literally double click it and link it. And so it takes maybe three minutes to onboard. So most people use the cloud version. We do also offer an on-prem version that you know people would you'd have to have your IT department set it up. But the advantage there not only would be that the people you know can own their own data, but not only that they would have their own data in-house, but we can also log kind of extra pieces about it, more granular data. So if you change, for example, a pipe diameter from six inches to twelve inches, we could log that exact change because then your data is on your server and we don't need to, you know, we're not stuck maintaining sets of your data. Okay, so so that makes sense. We've talked about logs. We've talked about you know documenting the process. Is any of this reproducible in the same way? Like if I build a a model builder model in ArcGIS Pro, for example, yeah, I can run it, and then that's another way of documenting the process as well. I could even go into and and look at the geoprocessing history, okay, and, and see what's happening in there. This could be a form of documentation. Is any of that kind of thing possible within ChronoCards? Can I document and create these sort of reproducible workflows? based on, on what you're logging? Yeah, so like kind of as you go through the, the trial and error aspect of GIS and you're just banging out a bunch of different pieces of the analysis, you can, after the fact, pull the steps that worked out of your ChronoCards log and group them into an IPython notebook that you can then bring within ArcGIS Pro and run it as an IPython script or annotate it more and kind of share it out with other people on your uh, your team. And so this allows you to kind of document the work as you go, either by leaving comments from within Pro, which uh, Chrono Cards would support, or you can just go through, run through an analysis, and then, as I said, pick out the pieces after the fact and group them into a standard operating procedure or a training document that is also an IPython notebook so that you can send it off to someone and they can run that exact analysis. So actually going back to the example of you and I working together, if you know, you had chrono cards and you recorded your analysis as you were doing it, and then you left, I could go back into your chrono cards log and pick out your pieces of the analysis and group them into a Python notebook and then run your exact analysis, even without needing to maybe understand the exact pieces that went into it, because I'd have the exact steps you took. Even if I didn't necessarily understand exactly why, they'd all be there. So yeah, I'm just guessing here, but but I imagine something like this would be great for, you know, if, if I was doing freelance work and working with clients, I could produce the documentation and say, well, this is exactly what I've done. This is how the data has changed over time. And you can see my work history. Can I provide people with a dashboard as well? Is there some kind of visualization of, of what's happening along the way? Or is it all just you know, text, like lines of, li- lines of log files? Yeah, through the, the Chrono Cards uh, web app, we have a reporting dashboard that allow you to kind of slice and dice the logs however you need to and to be able to see progress over time. And this allows you to look at not just your progress, but other people within your team's progress so that you can kind of work your way backwards, as, as you were saying, through the data to see, all right, if we started on August 1st and then we made 560 changes to this feature class in SDE, we can see how that data set evolved over time and who was working in it when and which tools were applied to it, uh, you know, which edits were made. And work our way through the data to see almost like an automated log of the metadata, but at a very granular level, because we can see exactly who did what and when to this data set. 
And that would just happen for, you know, any data set that you could open in Pro, provided that you had the logging enabled. So this must be incredibly helpful for remote teams, at least I'm guessing. You could all be working on, you know, the same or, or different projects, and you could keep this sort of running record of, of who was doing what and how they're doing it. And it, my, my guess is that, like, someone in management can come in and, and check up on things. Has re- remote work, have you seen the need to do remote work? Is that sort of created a need for something like this or did the did the need exist before uh i think the need definitely existed before it was just highlighted by remote work you know much like github existed before and then once we're all remote being able to see everyone's uh work without needing to you know call someone or pull someone out of a meeting to talk, talk about it invaluable but one of the kind of the main drivers chrono cards did start before the pandemic but one of the kind of the first big inflection point we had was Right around when companies were sending their workers home, Apple's mapping team does a lot of OpenStreetMap work, and we also support OpenStreetMap. And they sent their whole mapping team home and needed some way to manage the people as they're making edits and as they were changing OSM to be able to see teams of people working all together. And so they signed up for Chrono Cards then, and that was our first kind of big client where we were able to help them manage a team of now remote workers that's happened overnight because virtually everyone was sent home without knowing when they're going to come back into the office. And so we kind of cut our teeth at the start of the the pandemic, helping remote teams collaborate. And we still do that today, but I don't think you necessarily have to be remote to still see the benefits of it because in, again, in our example, we're working together, you might be in a meeting and whether or not you've made changes is kind of holding up my day. It's my blocker for the day is to figure out, all right, did Dan finish these things yet? Is he done with the analysis? Is the data been updated? And with Chrono Cards, I could go and look and see if you've done those things without needing to wait for you to get out of the meeting or wait for you to get back from lunch. And so it's still useful even if we are together in the office, but I'd say it's especially useful for remote teams where it's not evident exactly that, you know, when something is finished so that the next part can begin. So, so I can definitely see the utility of this. It, it seems like a, an, an absolutely brilliant idea, but not everything is for everyone. What do people say when they push back on this? When you show up and say, hey, look, I've got this great tool. It can do X, Y, and Z. It's going to help you in these seven ways. And they say, no, it, it's not for me. What, what do they say? What, what do they point out and say, I don't like this bit about it, or I don't think that's, that's going to work for us? Yeah, one of the the bigger objections from, you know, like an analyst standpoint is that it seems a little big brothery, but I would say that the the log is far more valuable being able to, to remember what you did and being able to see what everyone else has done. That level of collaboration is far more valuable than any, you know, perception of overwatching this. It's similar again to GitHub where as a software developer, someone can look back and say exactly what I was doing yesterday and they could use that to say like, oh, you took an hour off for lunch, or they could use it to say, okay, cool. These are, you know, this is when things were happening. This is where we're at. And, you know, most people are professionals and are mature enough to be able to say, oh, yes, well, you know, I took an hour off for lunch because I, my wife was in town and we wanted to go eat. And then I went back to work and the ability to see exactly what was happening was, is far more useful than the ability to look over someone's shoulder. And IT departments have way better tools for creeping on people <laughs> on, on work machines anyway. Than we would ever have. So that, that's kind of like what, one of the main objections from analysts and then from management, the idea that, that they don't really need to, to be able to see GIS progress in order to stay on top of a team. 
And I'd say that that's true to an extent. You know, you don't need to see GS progress at a granular like, oh, Dan did this GP operation yesterday. Oh, Dan made this edit yesterday. For sure. Most people are not going to need to dive that deep at a management level. But we also have some trends to allow you to see like, okay, you know, these are this is when work is getting done more or less. This is our server response time and things like that. And so you know, from a management level, yes, we, you know, we can provide super granular data and sometimes people push back on that, but the ability to see trends to forecast when you're going to need extra manpower or when you're going to, or when the servers are the things that are slowing you down. Cause we also, uh, you know, we log server response times from SDE or from portal. That kind of information at a high level is still useful, even if you don't need the granular pieces. Uh, thanks very much. I, I realize it might, might feel a bit strange to be on a podcast saying negative things about your product saying why people <laughs> why people don't want it or, or what people say when they push back but I, I really appreciate it because i think there these will be valid arguments for some people we talked about two different groups there and if it's okay with you i'd like to sort of understand how you how you explain the product to these two different groups of people firstly we had the analysts and then, and then we had the, the people in in management positions and i think this might be really interesting for people to understand who are thinking about doing something similar to understand that the product actually doesn't change, but the messaging needs to change depending on who you're talking to. So I'd be curious, what kind of messaging do you use when you talk to an analyst? When you talk to the GIS person who's going to be using the product, how do you sell it into them? And then after that, I'd like to hear the, the messaging you use when you talk to, to management, when you're saying, hey, this is the product for you, how you explain it to them. Yeah, I mean, for me, with my background as an analyst, the analyst conversation is always the easiest by far. I think most analysts kind of understand this. You know, they might have the objections that I mentioned earlier, but they understand the utility of it because we've all been there. So pulling our hair out, very stressed, wondering like, why does this not work now? I know I did this before. And, you know, everyone hates that feeling in their gut when they can just like, I did this last month. Why? What were the pieces? Why didn't I write it down? And everyone understands it, it, it's, it's kind of like a hallmark of learning GIS. I remember being in the GIS lab uh, when I was a student, just screaming in the middle of the night, like, how is this not working? <laughs> and uh, the analyst seems to understand for the most part that, oh, yes, well, if you can see exactly what you did, then you can reproduce it, at least, you know, for the most part. And this ability to document your workflows automatically as you go, so you don't even have to think about it. Maybe you, maybe you didn't intend to reproduce this workflow, you know, your analysis. You thought you'd never use it again, but then you have to go through and, and do it again. For the most part, to, to the analyst, once I explain this, you know, the time savings and the lack of frustration is readily apparent. Perfect. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. And to be honest, when you demoed the product for me earlier, I thought the same thing. Wow, look at this. I mean, I, I get it. I, I would have had the same... Some sort of concerns about privacy. Oh, is someone going to track every move that I, that I make? But I can really see the utility in what you're talking about. Okay, but, but that's, that's people like us, people with a technical background. How do you explain the same thing to a, a non-technical person, someone who's sitting in a decision-making role, someone who's in management? Yeah, so this is where I am weakest, we could say. Um, my background's not in sales. It's not in necessarily even in business, uh, other than just like the freelancing side of it. But you know, the benefits are pretty clear. It's just a matter of, of communicating them. And so part of this is just saying, like, if you're struggling to quantify your team's impact, in short, I've talked to many managers and just trying to figure out the pain points. And three kind of big ones that came out were people were struggling to identify when or how much their team was doing in a 
quantifiable way, something that they could show to you know their managers and say, yes, GIS is maxed out. No, we cannot double the amount of maps we make next month. Like, no, the server cannot handle any more uh, map you know, web maps based on it. This kind of impact quantification and the amount of work that GIS is doing is amorphous. You know, kind of kind of lives in the dark. It's difficult to say exactly how much GIS is doing within an organization. And Chrono Cards at least provides some way, albeit a little crude, to say like, oh yes, well we've done this many operations, this many edits, this many map exports. You know, we're pretty tapped out. We can't do any more. And so the ability to assign a tangible number to the amount of work that GIS is doing is something that seems to resonate pretty well with managers who are being pressed to do more with less or to getting pushback against hiring someone else for GIS, even though their de- department might desperately need it. So that, that's one of the, the main points that resonates. The other one would be just, again, the amount of time that can be saved documenting your own work. And GIS managers seem to, for the most part, have come from an analyst background how far back is, is another question, but they seem to mostly remember how much time they wasted documenting things or writing SOPs or onboarding new employees and saying like, oh, well, this is how we run a reconcile and post at our company. This is how we do X or Y. You know, this is how we run a watershed analysis. And the ability to have that documentation created for you as your, you know, your senior analysts go through it automatically. So senior, senior analysts would run through a watershed analysis be able to export this documentation and say, all right, new hire, here you go. These these are the exact steps you should take. And that sort of time savings just in terms of documentation and onboarding is another thing that's pretty massive in terms of that. That's another thing that resonates pretty well with management. And, you know, of course, everyone would would know like management is pretty quantitative, quantitative. And so really the numbers and we have a couple of case studies about the amount of time that can be saved and translating that into dollars and things like that. When you get into the nuts and bolts, the, the numbers and the metrics are really what sell management. Earlier in, in the conversation, you, you mentioned that you, you didn't have a background in business, that you, you came from this cartography background, you worked as an analyst, and then taught yourself how to program and moved on to the freelancing side of it. And now you're running a business. Now, now you're a founder. And for someone who doesn't have a background in business, it sounds like you've come a long way and, and you've learned a lot. But there'll be someone out there listening to this going, wow, that, this guy is, you know, h- how's he doing this? How did he get started? A lot of people have ideas. Very few of us build businesses around it. How did you know this was going to be a, a good business, a profitable business? How did you know that you wanted to commit to this and learn all this other stuff that you have to, to, to run a successful business? Like, what was your motivation? Well, yeah, I'm really flattered to hear you say that it's a profitable and successful business. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it's things are going pretty well. But no, I mean, at no point did I ever really know. I mean, I still it's still difficult to say that I know. And so there's always a degree of uncertainty that comes with not just, you know, working for someone else and taking a paycheck. And a large part of that is just kind of making peace with that uncertainty. And that's something I struggle with all the time. You know, we, we do have uh, some great clients. You know, we have a, a pretty stable base of customers. But as we enter into a recession, you know, it's you have to adapt with that or you have to at least cross your fingers really hard that uh, you can adapt and that you know, things won't, won't go under. And so there is just a lot of uncertainty to it. And saying that I know now, I wouldn't say that I know, <laughs> but I have learned a lot along the way, uh, as you, you mentioned, really the the internet as a whole. I am on some subreddits about marketing, about sales, 
about uh, just business in general. That has helped a lot. Uh, and then watching YouTube videos. I mean, I'm wholly self-taught for business as well. And the biggest thing that I would say is just you just have to get really comfortable with a lot of uncertainty because you're kind of flying in the dark. I had never sold a product to enterprise users before, you know, like a B2B product. And just learning the whole sales process there was a whole, I mean, that, that was, there's just as much to learn there as there is to learn for programming. And so when I taught myself software development and thought like, that's great, I'm done. It's going to be a great life. You know, it could have been if I wasn't so foolish just to start this. <laughs> um, what, what would you do differently? So how long have you been running this business now? How long have you been working on Chronicards? I think it's been two years and 11 months. LinkedIn recently told me. <laughs> so so we'll call, <laughs> we'll call it three years. Um, yeah, just before the pandemic. So it feels like three years. So, okay, not focusing on the software side of things. What would you do differently if, if you could go back in time? What would you tell yourself? I would definitely talk to more people before building anything. I had built Chrono Cards kind of in reaction to a friend's company. A friend has a, a, GI, a large geospatial data management company. They, they generate a lot of data, data editing company, kind of. And he had approached me with the basics of the problem, saying like, hey, I've got a lot of people editing stuff and I have no idea what's happening. There's too many of them for me to keep track of individually. They can tell me what they're doing, but there's just a lot of moving pieces. And so it's hard for me as a manager to see at a high level what is actually happening. And this was three years ago. And so I built the initial version of Chrono Cards in reaction to that over a weekend, saying like, oh, cool. Well, I can track some of the things that are happening here in GIS. And I solved his problem probably in the first two, three weeks. We you know, really had a yeah, very solid product for his problem and his use case. And I was like, cool, I'll just keep, keep building things. And so I just kept tacking on features here and there that I thought would be cool. You know, me as the analyst. And they are cool and I do like them, but there wasn't necessarily a business case for it. And so what I would do differently would be, for sure, I would talk to more analysts that weren't me and more GIS managers before going out and building all of these features that turns out people think are kind of cool, but it's not a driver of revenue. It's not a driver of adoption. People see it and they're like, oh, that's neat. But I, you know, I could have spent a week making one of those features when there was something that would have been way higher impact of an item to create. But instead, I went off and built the features that I wanted instead of the features that my customers want. I think there's some really, really, really good advice there. What's been the most impactful feature that, you're, that you've added? The, the feature where people said, yes, that's the thing. That's the thing that I'll pay for. Hmm. That's a good question. Because hmm. right, right now, we seem to be split kind of 50-50 between just the log itself, just the idea of having a centralized log and the documentation, the ability to pull pieces out of the log and group them into like an SOP or something like that. And so it's, it's still kind of split between those two. The log itself may seem like, oh, well, that, that's an easy one. That's kind of like the core of the product. But it wasn't always that way, actually. It, it started as just a dashboard, essentially, that would uh, summarize the stats. And so you couldn't see granular data. You, couldn't, you as the analyst couldn't scroll back and see what you did. You could just see that you did X number of operations last week or X number of edits. So I'd say maybe just the idea of, of presenting the log itself at the most basic, the ability for me to say, hey, Dan, these are the 15 things you did yesterday so that three months from now when you need to go back and find out you know, which data sets you touched on today, you could do it. What has been the, the most effective marketing strategy that, you, that you've tried so far? Without knowing, 
my guess is that you've tried a bunch of different things because that's what you do when you, when you have a product and, oh, I need to reach more people. So you, you try all these different things. Maybe you've run Facebook ads. Maybe you've tried writing blog posts. Maybe you've tried other different things. What's been the best marketing strategy so far? The thing that's worked? Yeah, I mean, you're correct in that uh, I have tried just about everything. And LinkedIn outreach is pretty high up there in terms of cost to payoff. Like, you know, the, the, the ratio there is pretty favorable. But in terms of like the biggest clients that we've won, we are in as we're in the Esri startup program, which if anyone's thinking about starting a geospatial startup with Esri things, they should look into. But we're in year three. Yes, this is our last year of the Esri startup program. And they allow us to have like boots at every Esri conferences in the startup zone. And that has helped tremendously. Just the, you know, the presence at the conference and having a booth where people can just catch, you know, you catch their eyes as they walk by and chat with them and show them real quickly what it is you're working on. Yeah, conferences uh, have been probably the biggest one. And that, that might be because, you know, we're going for mostly B2B and generally larger organizations. And it's difficult to get to find those people that you need to talk to. And it's just more organic if they happen to see you and they're interested and then they come to you. Uh, you can make more of a, you know, a true business to business connection face to face at a conference, I feel. Do you remember your, your first sale? Do you remember the, the first dollar you made with, with Chronocards? I do. Yes. So it's actually, as I was just saying, my friend's company, you know, the, the reporting dashboard was the first one and we undercharged by a lot for <laughs> per user undercharged by a ridiculous amount but his company is actually still a customer of chrono cards to this day so they they've been here pretty much the entire time from day one to now yeah i, I remember doing something similar with, with some of my businesses that undercharging at the start and now i, I do it like when i start something new i know that i'm gonna just make a ton of mistakes i know that i'm gonna undercharge overcharge yeah, that, that it's not going to work out. It's not going to be perfect. And for some reason, that, that makes it a lot easier for me. It's like, no, this is not going to be perfect. It's probably going to be wrong in some way, shape, or form, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'll learn from that after the, you know, once I've done it, I'll look back and evaluate what I've done, evaluate how it went, the scale of my failure, and, I, and I'll just move on from there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, there is a certain comfort in just resigning yourself to it that like, yes, well, the first, uh, you know, first couple ones are just going to be a wash. But yeah, we'll learn, <laughs> learn as we go and it only gets better. Exactly, exactly. I think it's about getting those reps in, you know, trying things. I mean, not just <laughs> randomly, but trying things in, in a specific direction, but waiting for that perfect moment, waiting for that perfect product, waiting for that perfect service or, or pitch or whatever. It, it just doesn't happen. Or at least it hasn't happened for me anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I guess to go back to your earlier question, if there's anything else I would tell myself, it would be to start marketing far earlier than, you know, than I thought I would need to. It had been maybe a, a, you know, a year between when I had first launched and when, you know, we started marketing in, in earnest. And that was a mistake. Should have done it even before we had the product should have started marketing from day negative five, uh, negative 50 marketing and kind of generating interest ahead of time. So that's, when the day comes that you do get someone who's really interested, you can talk to them, you can build features that will suit, you know, that will solve their, their problem. And then you're just ready for the next one. So I guess starting everything earlier, not even just software development, but starting marketing earlier to make sure that the product we build is aligned to what people need. When I think about marketing something before you even have a product, I, 
I think of it as like just building up permission to talk to people when, when you actually have something to say, like building up permission to, to have their attention. And then later on, when you've got something to sell them, when you, when you need some advice, when you're looking for some feedback, you've got that permission to reach out to them, say, hey, look, I've earned your permission. Would you take the time to look at this thing here? I don't think you need any, like, I don't think it always has to be a, a sales, you know, a sales pitch every single time. But sometimes just sharing your story, like uh, documenting the journey, that could be a way of marketing before you actually have something to sell. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the things that I do now aren't directly tied to sales. They're just like, oh, well, you know, I feel like we should get something out there that people will be interested in. We should build some things, provide some value. So that, as you said, when the time comes that we do have questions that we can ask the community or when we do have something that we want to put in front of someone, you know, there's some credibility behind it. It's not just, oh, we showed up out of the blue and tried to sell someone. So we're slowly but surely running out of time here. But uh, I want to ask you, so so, so what does the future of this look like? I mean, what features can we expect to see in Chrono Cards over the next year or two? What else are you going to be building and concentrating on? Yeah, ultimately what we're moving towards is being GitHub for GIS. And what we ultimately want to provide kind of two different things. One is going to be the ability to branch your data, to be able to do a lot of editing maybe across uh, different environments on a feature class from SDE or something in, in Portal, to do a lot of editing there, keep track of those, and be able to check branches out of the data, kind of like how you can do in GitHub. And I know you can do this to an extent using uh, Esri's tools as it is now, but with branch versioning and things like that. But it's not quite as elegant as what software engineers would be used to with GitHub, where you can just seamlessly check a branch out and apply all those edits to a stack, or you can merge and pick and choose which changes get merged in. And so that's something that's on our, you know, our, it's a longer term plan because that involves a much more intimate uh, access to your data which right now we, you know, we just kind of log metadata about it. But that would be supremely useful based on um, you know, just my knowledge and everyone I've talked to, the ability to manage data, geospatial data, the way that you can manage branches within GitHub or Git uh, and pick and choose pieces would be invaluable. And then the second piece would be to, to log changes to the data that happen in activity that happens from within ArcGIS Online or a web map because a lot of editing now happens in the browser or analysis would happen in the browser from perhaps you know, a less technical user. And even there, it's, it's important to capture changes to the data to see like a holistic picture of what happened. And so support for more devices within the ecosystem, uh, either in the browser when you're on a web map or a web app or uh, within mobile devices when you're out doing uh, field collecting data, that would be... Those two things are really the, the biggest uh, items in our docket for the future. Because you're building on top of with, with, within Esri, is there, is there any part of you that worries about Esri coming for your business at some, some stage, implementing some of these things in, in their core software? Yes. That's an honest answer, I think. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, don't, I really don't have a decent answer to that one other than, yeah, like I'm kind of worried about it, but it's not going to keep me up at night because what can I do about it? Yeah, fair enough. I appreciate your honesty there. It wasn't my intention to put you in a in an awkward situation, but I, I think it's worth it's worth understanding that you know this is something that maybe you should be thinking about. Yeah, I mean, people have told me before that they're surprised that this already isn't included in Esri, which honestly, I'm also kind of surprised it's not included in Esri. 
but a large part of our our value proposition is just how easily you can go through and find these things. A lot of the pieces that we have are essentially, as I mean, it's it's no secret, it's essentially geoprocessing history. It's geoprocessing history and edits that you make, both of which uh, Esri has behind the scenes. And you could theoretically develop your own tools in-house to rip all these pieces and put them together in a package so it's easy to sort them and filter them and present them and access controlled and everything like that. All the pieces are already there. So in a way, Esri kind of already has all these things, but what we do is package them and present them in a way that's you know more valuable and easier for the user. Packaging is extremely underrated, I think. Extremely important. I think people will pay for convenience as well. So I have access to, you know, I don't know, C++. I could just go and get it, right? And, and then theoretically, I could build whatever I wanted, but I'm not going to because, you know, convenience matters. Packaging is important. It's not the thing that, that, I, that I'm really great at. So I'd be happy to pay for people to do that kind of work for me. Mike, thanks very much for your time. This has been awesome. I really appreciate you sort of walking us through what it is that you're building, how you got started, and what you plan to build on top of it in the future. And also really appreciate just hearing a little bit more about your journey, like the, the, the things you think about, the, the struggles you've had along the way. I, I hope that this helps somebody else who is thinking about going down a similar path. So thank you very much. Where can people go if they want to reach out to you, if, if they want to try this out, if they, if they want to dig a little deeper? Where should they go? What should they do? We have a website, uh, chrono.cards, C-H-R-O-N-O dot C-A-R-D-S. Yeah, we snagged a fancy TLD because regular one wasn't available. Um, so chrono.cards. Uh, we're also on Twitter at get underscore chrono cards and LinkedIn at chrono cards. Well, you've just got one more follower on Twitter. I will, I'll see you there. Thanks very much for your time, Mike. Really enjoyed talking with you. All right. Thanks. You too, Dan. So once again, that was Mike Delantis, CEO and founder of Chrono Cards. You can visit Chrono Cards at C-H-R-O-N-O dot cards or check out the links in the show notes. It's probably worth riffing on this idea of uncertainty just for a minute. I, I think this is one thing that we all have in common. There'll be something about our lives professional or private that we are uncertain about and so when i think about mike's journey i'm guessing he's experienced this a lot you don't go from being a cartographer for an adventure race in patagonia to running a business and all the things that come with that without experiencing a lot of uncertainty mike also mentioned he'd been a freelancer that is fraught with uncertainty how much do i charge am i doing a good enough job will this client come back to me and i know this from personal experience that uncertainty it can be paralyzing. It can stop us from doing our best work. I've had the pleasure over the last three, four, five years of talking with a few different people that have overcome a lot of uncertainty. People that are self-taught software developers like Mike. People that have started their own GIS, geospatial consultancies, built their own businesses around their skills. None of those people have overcome uncertainty. None of those people are now immune to uncertainty. They've simply learned to live with it. So as someone who has experienced and continues to experience a lot of uncertainty, these stories have really helped me. They've really had a positive impact. It's, it's been great to know that huh, other people go through this too and look at them now. So I'll put links to some of those episodes in the show notes today and hopefully they'll inspire you as well. Okay, that's it for me. That's it for this episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. I really appreciate it. We'll talk again soon.